I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Over Everything podcast for Yahoo Sports Canada. I'm your host, William Liu. Joining me on the podcast today is a draft analyst that I have been leading on heavily. And by that, I mean I've been copying off his notes <laughs> because clearly I'm not someone that uh, is, is watching too much college ball, which is why, especially around draft time, you got to bring in experts and um, Adam, Adam Spinella of the Box and One has been uh, an invaluable resource for my draft preparation. I've been watching a ton of his videos on YouTube um, and also looking at your big board, which is publicly available. So, um, Adam, thanks for first off, thanks for all that you do. Uh, and also thanks for joining me on the podcast here. No, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, really glad to be here. I think the NBA draft is always an exciting time of year, not just because of all the prospects that are evaluating and sort of the, the fun of throwing the darts at the dartboard, if you will, and trying to figure out who's going to stick and, and who ends up being a great player, but the fluidity of roster situations around this time in the NBA. I don't think a year goes by where this June, July period doesn't have some blockbuster, some crazy move that shakes up a roster and a team or two. So there's so much to be watching right now that uh, I feel like Twitter and hitting instant refresh is what we spend a lot of our days doing. So uh, an exciting time to be diving into hoops and, and basketball. And certainly the Toronto Raptors are uh, at the center of that right now. And, and one of the more interesting positions moving into draft night with also flexibility to be involved in a lot that goes on outside of the draft as well. Yeah, listen, we're going to talk about first off the options with the number four pick where the Raptors did move up in the lottery. Um, one of two big winners on the night, I would say. Um, and we'll talk about sort of the options they have with the fourth pick. 
But we could also talk about, as you mentioned, sort of the flexibility that fourth pick allows you to get into in terms of, okay, you, you, you've landed the fourth pick. How does that change your overall team building strategy, whether that makes you more competitive or, or maybe more of a rebuild in terms of looking um, more long-term. But let's start with the, the, so the draft itself. Um, the consensus seems to be that there's a top four and it kind of falls off after that. Um, do you share that opinion um, in terms of sort of the talent in this draft? I think so. Uh, I, I would put it more in terms of a top six than a top four. Uh, I think a lot of people have the the same opinion that there's more delineated five and six that separate themselves from everybody else. But I think there's more fluidity across those categories than people think. And for those of you that paid attention to the draft last year, I, I try to use this class as a pretty good comparison. Uh, there was a, a top three in the draft last year by most consensus boards of Anthony Edwards, LaMelo Ball, and James Wiseman in some sort of order. I think that even picks five and six and, and the top prospects that we have this year would be a very good bet to go number one a year ago. So the, the top end talent in this draft is really, really strong. Where the ledge kind of falls off is at pick number seven. Tends to oh. be really uncertain right now. So that's where Raptors fans should already be rejoicing that they've moved up or at least not been leapfrogged to the point where they're right at the bottom of that cliff. Uh, you're, you're certainly on the plateau where you can pick a, an alpha and a franchise-changing prospect, even at the number four spot. Okay, so I think most people know uh, the options in the first four. Who are the five and six that you're including in sort of closer to that first tier? Yep. So in, in, those, first tier? in those consensus categories, Cade Cunningham, Evan Mobley, Jalen Green, and Jalen Suggs are the, the names that most frequently come up in that top four group. And I'd say that they're at least a lock to go in the top six. Scotty Barnes out of Florida State has really emerged over the last few weeks played and tested, excuse me, just tested and interviewed well at the Combine, played a, a really unique role for the Florida State Seminoles this year as a, a one-and-done freshman, and we can get into the specifics on him in a little bit. And then Jonathan Kaminga uh, out of the G League Ignite program is a really raw, young, high-upside scoring wing that I think there's a lot of teams, especially in that rebuilding phase, that are going to find themselves in the top six that will talk themselves into him because he has a lot of upside uh, especially if he figures out how to shoot the basketball. So to me, those are the top six. Barnes and Kaminga maybe a half step below everybody else. And as we get into the discussions here, uh, I'm really, really high on Scotty Barnes on my personal big board. I recently moved him up to number four mm -hmm. overall. So that's an area where there's fluidity and, and upward mobility for a guy like Barnes to continue to climb. And I think that that's a, that makes him a serious pick for the Raptors to consider it for. Okay, let's start at the top. Is there, would you say Kate is the consensus number one, or does it do you feel like that even that is now sort of becoming undone? Because I felt like over the course of the year, just sort of tangentially looking at mock drafts and stuff like that, it seemed like he really emerged. I mean, when you watch the film and stuff, six, eight, able to create, able to shoot really well, um, it all kind of screams like what you would normally expect a number one star to sort of be in the modern NBA. So is he that consensus number one, or is there maybe, it seems like a lot of um, momentum behind Jalen Green of late, because he's also obviously very electric. Jalen Green's electricity, and there's a little bit of an unknown quantity with him because he played in fewer games. He was in the G League right. Ignite bubble. Um, his athleticism pops in a way that Cade Cunningham's doesn't necessarily. You know, if there is one 
weakness or improvement area for Cade's game. It's his overall quickness, first step and, and burst at the basket. He's a little bit more of a grounded athlete where he plays in like a Jason Tatum or a Luka Doncic type of fashion. He can still dominate a game with his skill, his passing, his scoring ability. And he's a, a tall wing defender. He's six foot eight with a seven foot wingspan. And those guys are always valuable on the basketball floor, even if they're not averaging 20 a game. Um, but because Kate doesn't have that, you know, electric highlight film where he's beating guys off the bounce and throwing it down over the basket, he's a lot more and grounded and, and playing within himself and, and based on skill as opposed to athleticism. There are those who might favor the high upside athleticism and say, we can teach the skill. We can't necessarily teach the, you know, um, the, the burstiness at the basket. So those folks might favor Jalen Green a little bit more. I'd consider that overthinking, to be honest with you. I, I, Cade Cunningham is still highly the consensus number one pick. I think he should remain that way because he impacts the game in so many different ways. Um, incredibly polished scorer and playmaker already at his age. And at Oklahoma State, his assist numbers were really hindered by playing on a team that missed a lot of open shots. They didn't surround him with shooters. And he had some teammates that, that blew kind of bunnies, so to speak. He gift-wrapped some assists and, and layups and dunks for teammates that they missed. So a lot of people pointed his assist turnover ratio or the lack of high assist numbers at Oklahoma State and say, I don't know if I'd feel comfortable with a non-elite athlete being the number one overall pick when passing is such a large part of his game, and those are his assist numbers. Mm -hmm. But there's a, a really, really easy explanation for why those assist numbers were a little bit lower and the turnovers were so high. He was the only guy who did everything and he played in a suboptimal scheme and spacing unit at Oklahoma state. Yeah. And I, I really liked um, just watching the film of what he does. Um, I think the passing does pop, even if the assist numbers don't necessarily do that. I think the vision is good. Throws passes early. If I find, and um, I, I just, I don't know. I think as a number one pick, it is very important to have that ability to make other people better. I think in, in a lot of these critiques, especially for younger players, maybe it's it's a lot easier for guys to develop um, maybe a scoring skill set and things like that. And, you know, if you compare sort of Jalen Green, Jalen Green, I guess one, the one concern I would maybe have more than anything else would be sort of he's he may be a little bit one dimensional. Um, I th and I think, you know, watching the videos that you made, there was a lot of instances where he could have passed and he just chose not to, which that's part of being um, an elite scorer. And I think he can get to his shot anytime he wants because he elevates so high with that elite jumping ability, can dunk, can, and has great handles and has a step back three, which is all very rare for a 19 year old. Um, but is, is that sort of one dimensionality something that is also a bit of a concern? for you when you, when you watch Green's game, if you were going to pick it apart? Yeah, so I guess this is a good segue into to my personal big board uh, on here. I have Cade Cunningham as the clear number one. I've had it that way since January uh, and don't really think that there's much of a reason to overthink it and try to change that process right now. I'm back and forth on the two and three spots on my board, and I've probably tinkered with it two or three times and will do so over the next month before the draft between Jalen Green and Jalen Suggs two really different types of players uh, with green. You mentioned the, the high ceiling and what he's already shown capable of as an athlete and a space creator at 19 years old is, is insane. Yeah. Uh, offense is about creating space and then maximizing it to finish plays. 
defense is about negating space that other opponents are trying to create or take advantage of. And I, I think Jalen Green has elite potential in both categories. He, he's not a great defender right now, but with that quickness, length, athleticism that he has, he certainly can become a really, really good defender. Um, you know, the, the high ceiling is certainly there. If there is a complaint about his game, it's probably more based on his, his feel right now. And I'm not one that likes to punish younger guys for you know, not being really, really firm playmakers when they're in their teenage years. I think that's, again, something you can teach, something you can develop. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also want to reward players who are really, really high feel guys because they're also going to continue to get better as they right. go through an NBA system. So it's, it's less about a negative for green as much as it is that Cade Cunningham's feel is elite. And to be frank, I think Jalen Suggs has an elite feel for the game. Yeah, and um, I think when, when I was watching your uh, the mock draft that you did after the lottery results were announced, when obviously we knew what the, the order was going to be, you had Suggs going number four to the Raptors, and I was thrilled because I, I think, you know, short of getting Cade, I think Suggs might be, especially in comparison to Green and Mobley, who are the other two options that are most closely linked to four. Um, Suggs just screams like a very complete player in a way that doesn't um, fully apply to those two other guys yet. And again, these guys are super young. and As you mentioned, these guys will improve uh, for sure. But um, with with Suggs, I I really do like his just his overall package. I mean, I guess that comes part and parcel of being a point guard. That's obviously you're going to probably – uh, have a hand in more plays um, than other players who are maybe just like looking to score or, or defenders. But I mean, with Suggs, I mean, why isn't he like, I mean, I guess he is very close to that for you. you he's basically 2.5 for you, but why isn't he the consensus number two picks? I think he's more complete than green and Mobley. So uh, a lot of it comes down to Mobley and we can talk about him in a little bit. Uh, most tiered rankings that I've heard or seen have, Mobley ahead of both Green and Suggs. I know mm-hmm. Green is starting to inch up and be in that three-man conversation, but you're right. Suggs doesn't get a lot of love for that two spot, and it seems that he's slightly behind the other three in those rankings. Uh, part of it probably has to do with three-point shooting consistency. That's a, a huge part of the NBA game right now, and Suggs wasn't fantastic as a shooter this year. He was streaky more than anything else. There were games where he was really, really good from deep, and when Gonzaga took on high-level competition, he rose to the occasion. Um, I see that as a, a huge positive. Mm-hmm. Another part of the Suggs was a fantastic football player in high school. Could have been a Division One starting quarterback at a number of high-major power schools. And basketball is his first love, which is why he's continued to pursue that. But I think multi-sport athlete guys have a lot higher upside as soon as they start focusing on basketball. So knowing Suggs' background, that as he commits himself to this a little bit more fully over the next year or two, the shooting consistency, the improved feel for the game, uh, being able to, to work on diversifying his scoring package, those are things that you typically put in in the offseason when you're working more individually with a trainer. Now that that's his full-time focus and football's in the rearview mirror, I think he's going to continue to pop in those ways. Uh, but, but when I think of Jalen Suggs and what makes him special, I continue to go back to that intangible it factor. Uh, right, right. A lot of times it's, it's a cop out scouting wise to talk about that when there's a prospect you like, but it very much is a, an, I know it when I see it mm-hmm. type of feel. And I'm big on trying to avoid comparisons of players because I think it, it sets someone up to fail. 
um, by saying, like with Cade Cunningham, if we compare him to Luka Doncic and Jason Tatum, like I did earlier, now all of a sudden yeah. he's not an all-star and a second-team all-NBA performer and carrying his team to the playoffs, he's seen as a disappointment when mm-hmm. his game can be much more nuanced and different in, in those ways. So I don't love doing the NBA comparison game. Um, with Jalen Suggs, the, the strange comparison that I make is actually to Derek Jeter. Uh, of the New York Yankees okay. because there's there's this it factor there's this swag and confidence and whenever there's a big play that needs to be made Jalen Suggs is the one that makes it uh, when they were backs against the wall unbeaten this year at Gonzaga playing in the the final four winner goes to the national championship game and UCLA has given them a run for their money mm-hmm. he made one slight mistake with about two and a half minutes left in regulation he helped a little bit too far off his man Johnny Juzang and gave up a corner three for the five minutes of overtime and the final two minutes, two and a half minutes of regulation. He dominated that game when his team needed him most BYU, the only team within their conferences here that pushed Gonzaga because they had such a a cupcake of a schedule in their league. Uh, They were down in the second half and Suggs took over and he didn't just take over in the, I'm going to put my head down and will our team to victory by scoring. He made the right plays as he continually did. And he made shots. Right. So I, I have very little doubt in his pick and roll playmaking. I have very little doubt in his three point shooting as he continues to develop. I'm just looking at all of the pieces to the puzzle about who he is. And I'm willing to, to bet my money on him becoming a, an all-star an alpha, a building block for an organization more than some of these guys who maybe have already flashed those skills, um, but don't necessarily have that intangible it factor. Um, I think the the point that you made about the f- switching from playing football and basketball to only focusing on basketball and that being an area where, um, especially for his individual work that he can improve. That's very interesting. That's very, very interesting to me because I think some of the things that you may be more concerned about is sort of, for example, if he comes to the Raptors at the fourth pick, which I would be thrilled. Um, but if, if he does come to the Raptors at the fourth pick, and let's say Siakam and Van Vliet are still here. I think Suggs is going to have to learn how to play off ball. I mean, generally speaking, most people are going to have to learn how to play off ball. You know, there's very few James Harden's or Lucas or, you know, people like that. Trey Young's, I guess. Um, but, you know, do you see that as sort of an area that he can improve on? I mean, I know in your video, you've, you've already noted a couple of plays where he made very instinctive cuts. And it seems like Gonzaga had a really nice system where, um, you know, that facilitated that. Uh, do, can you can you see him playing off ball and, and thriving in, in that way as well before the shooting and maybe or, or I mean depending on if the shooting obviously improves because that's obviously the hugest uh, skill you need off ball. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I think part of the reason for it, as you mentioned, the cutting ability is already there, where he just understands how to play off ball. He's also a pretty explosive athlete in straight lines. Uh, he's not the above the rim type of of dunker in the same way that a Jalen Green is or. Uh, for NBA fans out there, a Zach Levine, he's mm-hmm. not going to have that same type of power. But I think of him where, you know, especially coming off of ball screens or when he catches and takes one bounce towards the basket, he is as strong and quick and bursty at getting to the basket as a prospect that I've seen since maybe Derrick Rose. Okay, wow. He's really, really strong in straight lines to the point where if you watch his finishes at the basket and how he gets there, whether it's out of the pick and roll or just spotting up and attacking a closeout, he's basically running through the baseline and has trouble stopping his momentum. To me, those are guys who are just, they're going so hard and at their 100% maximum speed. 
mm-hmm. that it's borderline impossible to keep them out of the lane once they get their their legs under them and that first bounce to control their dribble. So with Suggs, that that's something I'm really, really drawn to is will he need to improve his shooting in order to be really effective off ball? Yeah. But if you get him to, to move, to catch the ball on the move and attack the basket in the same way the Celtics do with Jalen Brown, where a lot of his his catches are coming downhill where he can take one or two bounces and either mm-hmm. play in the mid-range or get all the way to the basket, Suggs is going to be just fine. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's great to hear. And I think the other concern-ish with Suggs, or maybe just a, a variable, is sort of playing Gonzaga. I've heard sort of arguments sort of for and against in terms of that inflated his numbers because he had such talented teammates. Also heard the argument made that that deflated his numbers because he didn't have the ball in his hands all the time as some other players may, like Cade, for example. Um, where, where do you stand on that? Because, I, you know, I think that's, that's important to know the context around a player's production. Absolutely. I'm a, a huge fan in looking at college systems to try to not just predict what type of player they'll be in an NBA scheme and finding comparisons or, or areas that aren't comparable, but also thinking about college coaches and how they teach skills that are going to set people up for the NBA success. I think there's uh, no surprise to, to hear a lot of people say like Jim Bayheim up at Syracuse doesn't necessarily prepare a ton of guys for NBA success because he doesn't teach man-to-man defensive principles. So it's harder for those guys to come in right away and make an immediate impact at the NBA level. Mark Few's system at Gonzaga is very ball screen oriented, but it's not ball screen oriented in the same way as the NBA is. NBA is more of a spread pick and roll league where you have your ball handler and your screener at the top of the key and you're surrounding them with shooters. Gonzaga was a lot more movement going on on the weak side while that ball screen is taking place. Uh, different reads, the lane was filled a little bit more. So if Suggs wanted to turn the corner, he a lot of times had to pick up his dribble higher and make a pass as opposed to just attacking the basket fully. I think that that means two things. One, he's going to have numbers that pop when he gets into a system that's a little bit more spread out around him. So I think that the, the numbers are, like you said in your latter point there, indicative of a system where he didn't get every touch in a way that would optimize his role. But the other part of that, it, he didn't, have insane usage at Gonzaga because they were such a well-oiled machine. They had an all-conference performer and a big man who loved to play both at the blocks and the elbows that they would play through. They ran a lot of sets for Corey Kispert, another lottery projected pick who's a really good shooter. Shared the backcourt with guys who were McDonald's All-Americans and and other draft prospects. So Suggs was certainly not a a one-man offensive unit. I think that that lowered his numbers and isn't necessarily indicative of a system that carries him to production. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. Um, with uh, So we touched on, I mean, I, I want to discuss Green more, but I just do feel like it's it, there's less to envision, I think, maybe with Green. I think it kind of like what he's doing right now, he's going to kind of try to do that at the NBA level. And he's got the athleticism, he's got the shooting, he's got the length. Um it feels maybe a little bit less interesting. Whereas Mobley, I feel like is when I watch him, the more and more I watch him, and I don't know if this is the same way for you, uh, but like, especially when you get close to the draft, you end up nitpicking guys so much that you watch all these videos and you're like, oh, I'm really out on this guy. I'm really you know in on this guy or whatever. Mobley's a guy where the more you watch, I feel like I'm starting to really worry about his cons- his his concerns. And I think the, the biggest concern is just the physicality. I think it kind of seeps into uh, a lot of areas of his game where, you know, his rebounding numbers may not necessarily be as great as you would imagine a seven-foot uh, super athlete to be. 
Um, you know, I've heard concerns about his second jump. And, and, you know, I think for me, some of these things are going to be alleviated once he bulks up. I think NBA training staffs have been for that. He's going to get stronger. Every player's going to get stronger, but he has a thinner frame and I'm sort of just envisioning him playing in a pick and roll and a wing on, you know, on the baseline, bumping his role and him not getting, getting to his spot or catching the ball and being able to impact the offense in that sense. Is this too big of a concern, his physicality or, you know, where do you stand on that? Cause I think that's, that, that is something that you would also want in, 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 in a big man who's primarily going to be playing in a pick and roll setting, playing at the basket and guarding at the basket, scoring at the basket, things like that. Yeah. I'll kind of give my Mobley primer in saying, um, you know, I have him fifth on my board right now. Okay. A lot of consensus places have him second and locked into that spot there. There are a few others that might have him third, but I'm one of the few guys that don't have him top, top three, let alone uh, top four. Have okay. him number five on my board. And one of the reasons for that is because I see him purely as a five. A lot of these outlets think that he's somebody that can play with another big man, uh, that there are complementary skills that have there. And one of the things that Mobley is already great at is defensive angles and positioning mm-hmm. and impact. He's going to come into the NBA and maybe mitigate what's usually a long learning curve for NBA big men. I mean, we've seen it with DeAndre Ayton in these playoffs. His rookie year was tough positionally. Yep. And defensively, all that is asked of an NBA rim protector and center who anchors the defense, it's a lot for young guys to transition to. Uh, it took Aiton two and a half, three years to really figure it out to the point where he's having a legitimately really strong impact on an NBA playoff series. So it takes time for those guys to progress in ways that it doesn't for guards. Mobley is already so polished with his angles, with understanding how to play two-on-one when you're disadvantaged in the pick and roll, in how he protects the rim from the weak side and and gets rotations. He's advanced in those ways where he might be able to cut into that learning curve a little earlier than other big men on the defensive side. He's also versatile because he's a really good fluid athlete where he can switch ball screens. He can be more aggressive on the perimeter. You know, we watched the Utah Jazz get played off the floor by the Clippers because they spread out Rudy Gobert who's defensive player of the year because he's so impactful, but he's only impactful in one way. Mobley doesn't have those same concerns. So defensively, you're getting somebody that's really, really strong in those areas. But I don't think he's someone who can play the four full-time. And a lot of scouts, a lot of mainstream media outlets that are really high on him right now see the opportunity for him to maybe split both positions because they see – offensively he has some perimeter skill and upside because he can beat guys in straight lines he's long and is a good passer with a projectable jump shot he hasn't made shots from three in high volume yet but it's projectable with where he's at Mm -hmm. I think those are strengths that as he develops they become stronger by being guarded by other bigs as soon as he's playing the wing spot and he's maybe guarded by somebody that's more like a Siakam or an Ananobi it those first step is gone because he doesn't have the the quickness advantage. He's long, but he doesn't have the quickness advantage anymore. So I'm a little bit lower than most people on Mobley and still think I'd take him number one overall a year ago. Um, But I'm lower in comparison to to others in this class, just because I I don't think there's that positional versatility to him. I am also uh, back to your original point about strength and, and kind of durability on the inside. That's never a reason for me to avoid drafting players. 
especially bigs. I think NBA, NBA franchises invest so much into dietitians and physical trainers in the on in the off season, their strength and conditioning program that if they don't believe they can add the right amount of mass and strength to these guys, then they probably need to fire and clean house in that department. It's more of an indictment on what they have or, or their process that they've undergone. If they can't turn somebody into a functionally strong physically player. Um, so that's not a reason for me to avoid drafting Mobley. That said, the expectation, if you're envisioning him to come in earlier on that learning curve, he's going to be straight with those angles and understand what he has to do, but he's going to be a little bit behind with the lack of physicality that he has. Um, it's just, it's the reality of being a teenager in the NBA. You, you take your lumps in those areas. So if the Raptors end up with Mobley or eyeing him at number four and say, this is the pick, I think that they can't necessarily be surprised if, if they're trying to gear up to go for one more run over the next year or two and maximize what they have with Kyle Lowry and then turn around and say, well, Mobley is supposed to be this great defender and he's getting physically abused. Like it, it is hard for young guys to make a defensive impact in the NBA. I'm not trying to discredit that. Um, but I also think that Mobley is probably best served personally going to a situation that's going to let him develop long-term live in the weight room and, and gain what he needs to on that end. Um, okay, let, let's talk about four and five then, um, or I guess four and six for you. Um, so with Scott, with Scotty Barnes, it, it, I think, especially when he went to the combine and it was confirmed that like, which, by the way, there's just like apparently a huge thunderstorm happening in Toronto right now. <laughs> so I, I apologize for that in the background. Um, but yeah, with, with Scotty Barnes, I think the one thing that when I looked at the measurements is sort of like, um, you know, uh, the measurements are not everything, but it kind of confirms what you see in the eye test. He's really a freak athlete. I think the way for most Raptor fans to envision him, he has most of the same dimensions as OG and OB. And OG is already extremely unique in that sense. Um, he has that sort of same fluid fluidity offense, um, uh, just uh, athletically, and, and maybe even more fluid than OG, because I think OG is stronger than he is more fluid. Um, he can be a little bit stiff at times, but um yeah, and, you know, I think with Barnes, it's just someone that you can really envision him succeeding in a modern NBA setting because he's big enough and quick enough to guard so many positions. Uh, he's great in the open floor, and he has a handle, too, which is always scary when you're that big, you know? And one thing that people knock OG for is just that he can't always get to the places he wants to get to because his handle is sort of below average, but he does make up for that with great shooting. Barnes doesn't have that great shooting yet, uh, but I could totally see why you have him so high and why he would be highly favored for, for a lot of NBA GMs. No doubt. Uh, Scotty Barnes is essentially a six foot nine point guard with over a seven to wingspan. Uh, it's, it's insane to think about the combination of physical skills that he has. Uh, when we're evaluating prospects, and this is an oversimplification, so bear with me on, on this point here, but we're looking at you know floor and ceiling and try to see what's the worst possible outcome, what's the best possible outcome. Where on that trajectory is the player right now? So we know how close to, you know, how much ceiling is left that he needs to investigate, or like in the case of a Peyton Pritchard for the Boston Celtics, for example, he was 22 years old as a rookie, not the highest ceiling, and he was already pretty close to that point. Now, they felt comfortable with what they were getting, so they took him anyway. Um, mm -hmm. When you're drafting in the top of a draft, you want high ceiling and a guy who, 
is impactful because they have a high floor, but can still continue to get better and reach that high ceiling. And I think Scotty Barnes is the, the prime example of something like that, where he is such a strong multi-positional defender and has an incredible feel for the game because he, like you said, has a great handle and is mm. an unbelievable passer from his experience being a point guard and, and the lead creator in an offense, that his floor is super high. At the very least, he's going to come in and guard one through five and be a Swiss Army knife on that side who finishes at the basket and is able to make good, good decisions when you put the ball in his hands. Now, the ceiling for him gets unlocked when he adds one of two skills. The first is shooting. He was a dreadful pull-up shooter and a dreadful catch-and-shoot threat. The form coming out of the combine looks a little bit more smooth and fluid. He shot it okay in high school, uh, much better than he did at Florida State, to the point where there are indicators that make you want to buy into the upside there. Um, I think at his peak, he probably ends up being guarded, similar to how Giannis is guarded in Milwaukee, where you know it's still within teams' best interest to go underneath screens and sag beneath and try to keep him in front because he is such a long, graceful athlete. Uh, but he can at least develop a jump shot to the point where he'll make you pay for doing that. The, the other piece with Barnes is the rebound and run potential. If you want to play fast, and we've seen this with the Raptors, it's something that Siakam has done really, really well over the last few years. Reward guys who want the defensive rebound. You know, if Siakam is great at crashing the glass and he pushes in transition, maybe he catches a cross match and is able to take somebody into the post. And now all of a sudden there's this mismatch that the Raptors can exploit. Right. Or he goes all the way to the basket with four, five, six spin moves on his way to get there. Uh, but that's an area where Scotty Barnes, I think, has a, a ton of upside. Is You surround him with shooters. You play a super big, interchangeably skilled lineup with guys like him, Siakam, and Ananobi. You rebound and run. It doesn't necessarily matter what you're running in the half court because you're getting so many points in transition where you're strong defensively, you get stops, rebound the basketball, and you have so many guys that start offense in that regard. Um, he, in order to get there, Barnes needs to be a much more impactful rebounder. That was one area I was really disappointed in watching him at Florida State. There are, as far as I'm concerned, one of the reasons I'm willing to overlook it, I see the explanation factors behind it. Okay. At Florida State, they played a really switching scheme, one through five. And because he was kind of the point guard in that area, when he would switch screens, he did so at the top of the key. Okay, He's spending most of his time 15 feet or farther from the basket. So he's not asked to chip down and rebound as much. He was more of the leak out, try to hit ahead to you on the wing, contest shots on the perimeter type of defender. So you can't necessarily be asked to do everything at the same time on the basketball court. I think as he settles into a less perimeter-oriented defensive role, he's going to rebound a lot more. Yeah, and, and you know, before the Raptors moved up to the fourth pick, and honestly, maybe even still at the fourth pick, before the Raptors moved up, he was the guy I was looking at, like, okay, if the Raptors are in that six, seven range, or I guess it couldn't be six, seven or eight range, if he's available, definitely take him. Because I thought just, just, just even you here talking about an, another 6'9 super athlete to go with, with Pascal and OG – just in, in your wing rotation in general is just kind of scary, let alone the fact that if you have him on the team, then maybe you can go small a little bit as well. And, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not, not a, none of the three guys are centers, but, uh, yeah, just com- the combined strength and, and, and the length alone is, is really nice. Um, he's, he's definitely very intriguing. And I think maybe Kaminga is the guy that's been lost a little bit 
I guess he just didn't have a very good G League showing. Um, his numbers were not that impressive in terms of his shooting percentages. Um, I mean, what, what do you make of Kaminga in that sense? Because I thought he was he was definitely higher, I feel like, coming into the year before going to the G League than after. Yeah, I, I struggle to pinpoint where everything went wrong as well because coming into the G League bubble, everyone knew that he wasn't, you know, a great shooter. That was mm-hmm. that was a known commodity for him. And I don't think he disappointed as much as people were hoping to see that he improved. He didn't. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that the evaluation on him was pretty consistent from where he was coming out of high school. He is uh, the youngest guy out of this group of, excuse me, of the top six. Mm-hmm. So in terms of getting in on that ground floor and knowing where the floor and ceiling is and how much upward trajectory is left with him, he's got a lot of room to continue to grow for the right franchise that is willing to go through some of those growing pains and continue to work on the jump shot, work on his feel for the game. The, the return on investment is really, really high uh, from the people that I've, I know and have spoken to who've worked with Kaminga in the past. They think that he's a, a great competitor. They think that he's someone who's going to rise to the challenge and wants to be great. I, I hear some of the online discourse about a lack of feel as a playmaker Obviously, the lack of shooting is part of it, and also a, a lack of desire to, to play defense. And I have not experienced those either in watching film on him or in what other uh, sources and, and folks that I've talked to who have been around him have really indicated. So I don't view this as a really high-risk pick. I think he's definitely uh, the, the lowest floor of the top six guys that we've mentioned on this group. And he's certainly the one who's farthest away from his ceiling right now. But um, again, if I'm comparing him to last year's class or anybody that comes after the sixth pick right here, I just, I think there's way too much upside that we're, we're overthinking things and trying to be outside the box by saying, well, I don't love this about Kaminga. So who else is a trendy pick that I might like to go ahead of him? Like sometimes it's simple. There are six guys who really have offensive alpha, um, upside in this draft. And Kaminga is one of them. He's a long, long athlete on the wing who loves to dominate in the low post, draws a ton of fouls. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are a lot of great things about him. I think we're overly focusing on what he can't do yet as opposed to what he'll look like if he adds those to his game. Right. I really do wonder what, if maybe the outcome would have been better for him if he went to uh like an NCAA program instead of the G League. It's hard to say, obviously. Uh, but, I mean, the level of competition is just very high in the G League. Uh, I mean, I think that's the thing, especially even if you look at some of these guys' numbers. Like, sometimes I'm guilty of it, too. Like, I'll watch, like I watch a lot of the Raptors 905 in the, in the G League this year just to, just to keep track of what Malachi Flynn and, and Jalen Harris were doing because they weren't in the rotation originally. So they finally got to go down to the bubble and they played a lot of minutes. And they looked great. Um, I think Jalen Harris, before he got hurt, was – you know, he's scoring with ease, hitting 40% from three, 20 points a game. I think Malachi Flynn had a, a number of 30-point games, was honestly just lighting it up. And so sometimes when you look in that context, you look at, uh, you know, even Jalen Green, whose primary uh, skill is scoring, you look at, you know, his scoring numbers, it's not as impressive. And, of course, you get that to Kaminga, that's also even less impressive because his numbers weren't great. But it's just like, I mean, at the same time, Malachi is like five years older. You know what I mean? A lot could change in five years. And um, 
I, I think when you look at the physical tools with Kaminga, I think obviously it's, it's pretty clear. I think he has some ball skill as well. Um, and yeah, it, it will take time for him to, to, to grow, but I, I do like, um, I think if you're in the, in the sixth pick in that range, especially if you have some, um, some time to sort of uh, develop a guy, I think he's, he's definitely a guy with a lot of upside. Um, now later in the draft, I think this is something that, is also interesting because the Raptors may participate in this area as well, whether that's to trade down from the fourth pick don't really anticipate them doing that. Um, but still it's, I guess possible, but there was also um, sort of a, I guess somewhere between a report and a rumor um, from uh, John Hollinger, who was down uh, at the, uh, the combine in Chicago and talking to execs and some of that. And sort of some of the chatter was, it seems like the Warriors want to upgrade, which, Obviously, they want to upgrade. They want to maximize Clay, who's going to be healthy next year. Draymond, who was Defensive Player of the Year worthy this past season, and Steph, obviously MVP worthy. Uh, and primarily, they want to use James Wiseman, last year's number two pick. They want to use Andrew Wiggins, probably as but mostly just a match salary. And then they have the seven and fourteenth pick. They had some bad luck in the lottery this year. Um, and and one proposal was sort of used, you know, using that package for someone like Pascal Siakam. Now I, I'm skeptical as to whether the Raptors want to pivot into a full scale rebuild. And um, even though Siakam had a down year, I think that moving off Siakam for this package would be uh, a position to to go into the rebuild. But you know, it's also a nice opportunity if you do see this draft as really good. And depending on who's available at seven, and depending on who the Raptors really rate at seven, there's some pretty nice options. And I think. You know, uh, Barnes is probably, especially with the sort of uh, momentum behind him, probably not available at seven. But there's a couple of guys that you you listed to me that I think would be pretty interesting here. Let, let's start with um, Alperin Sengun, uh, the, the the Turkish prospect. The I mean, honestly, the film looks amazing when you watch him play. He looks so skilled, so polished, uh, very different than probably a lot of like NCAA prospects. But what do you see here with Alperin? So we mentioned that ledge, so to speak, after the, the top six picks. Um, you know, I think that that's the superstar ledge where everybody else has a discernible question mark that would really prevent me from saying this is a guy I would want on the court in crunch, right. um, or at least being certain in knowing that they can be. There's, as you go through draft scouting a number of years, there are certain indicators that almost never fail you to say that this is at least going to be an NBA projectable player, someone who is going to be on the floor for, for heavy minutes. And the biggest indicator over the last few years has been statistical production in professional leagues in Europe. If you're able to come in and consistently put up numbers in those leagues and prove that you belong on the floor there, even if your game isn't the perfect translation to the NBA system, Mm -hmm. you're at least good enough in different categories or dominant enough in one that you can, can see your way on the NBA floor. And at 18 years old, Alperin Sengun was the MVP of the Turkish League. Not just the rookie of the year, the MVP. Um, absolutely dominant, almost double-double type of player who was top three or four and I think uh, 12 or 13 different statistical categories in the entire league. Wow. And he was clearly their best player. And if we've learned anything from Luka Doncic uh, uh, you know, a few years ago, it's that the question of does the talent level in this league translate to the NBA is kind of a moot point when you're going against professionals who are not just grown men and and a lot older and stronger uh, than you, but there's a high level of skill in European basketball that I think is 
Sangoon doesn't look lost in those situations. He's not just this bruising big man, powerful, you know, uh, powerful guy that's taking advantage of skilled players. He's a skilled player himself, as you mentioned, the polish, the footwork. I think he's going to be pretty good as a shooter. Uh, there's, there's a lot to like with him. Mm. Now, the, the huge knock on him is kind of twofold. One, he hasn't made shots a, a ton right now. Um, again, projectable with his, his skill, but he hasn't needed to because he's so dominant on the low post. And that's, that's the second point is people hear the, that there's a Turkish big man who's a really good scorer down low, and they mm-hmm. automatically think of Venice Kander. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's what comes to mind. It's a, a brain exercise that's really hard not to do. Like when, if I were to say, don't think about elephants, what's the yeah. first thing that you think about elephants? Yeah. You say there's a, a Turkish big man who scores on the block. You think about Enes Kanter. They play very different styles of basketball. Uh, Sengun is much more mobile on both ends of the floor. He's able to take guys off the bounce and then turn that into a post-up when he forces a switch or has an advantage where he's not just stationed on the block and puts his hand up and you throw the ball into him and he goes to work one-on-one down low. It's much more applicable to the modern NBA style, especially against switching defenses, where when you know you're going to strategically face a team that wants to switch, now you put Sengun, who's a really good passer, in a, a situation where he's either going to torch somebody one-on-one down on the block because he's patient, has great footwork, and is able to just muscle his way down there, or draw a double team and make the right read every single time. So uh, I, I don't worry as much about Sangoon's impact. I think the tells from his international time say that he's going to be really impactful. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm actually kind of worried about him. Just So Canada's playing in the Olympic qualifying tournament, and – uh Alperin is going to be in the, he's in the Turkish squad and luckily Canada is not in the same side of the bracket as Turkey but very well could face Turkey in the semifinal or the final and I think Canada's biggest player or tallest player is like Dwight Powell so you know it could be a little bit of a concern there he might be burning the um Canadians uh earlier than expected but no I, I really like his skill set and obviously like you know the concerns are you know, is he mobile defense enough defensively, which I think is a common enough worry for almost all big men nowadays. I mean, except for Mobley, who's like an alien, he, he really does move like he's six, five, um, you know, that that's fine. But I, I think the offensive skill and the polish, I mean, it, it's, it's so far above just when you watch him, it's immediately obvious. It's above so many other bigs in this draft. Um, and he's definitely someone to consider there. Um, you also have James Booknight um, a lot higher, and you want to talk about him. I mean, first off, is it possible for a guy like him to go seven? And, and if so, why are you looking at him to, to jump from probably the f- maybe consensus sort of 12 to 15 range into a position where he can go all the way up to seven? Yeah, with, with Booknight, you know, we mentioned that after that sixth pick when it falls down, a lot of the prospects here are projectable in a lot of ways, but they're maybe missing one key skill. Okay. Sengun, it was that perimeter mobility, whether that's on offense or defense. With Booknight, it's shooting consistency off ball. Uh, he was he was very very poor as a catch and shoot threat this past year at Connecticut, but he's really comfortable scoring off the bounce. His role uh, optimally is going to be kind of at its floor, more of a Lou Williams, Jordan Clarkson, Jamal Crawford bench scorer because he is Mr. Irrational Confidence. I mean, okay. he comes in and he can, he can light it up from anywhere on the floor. He's a really, really explosive athlete. 
um, has probably the best change of pace dribble that I've seen in this class. His, his hesitation move is, is truly elite. Yeah. Very good at and making difficult shots. Uh, he's that guy that you'll watch on your team and say, "Don't take that! Don't uh, good shot, good shot." Yeah, um, you know, can drive you crazy in, in how he shoots over double teams sometimes, but he makes them. Mm-hmm. And when he gets to his spots, he's really, really good. He had impressive showing at the combine because his shooting form was consistent. He was able to maybe discourage or, or um, excuse me, encourage a lot of scouts to say that he's going to end up being a a really strong shooter at the league. I think that as that gets remedied and the buzz about him shooting the basketball continues to pick up, that he's going to play his way into that seven through nine role. Um, I have him a little bit lower on my big board right now, just because I tend to prioritize players who have great feel Mm -hmm. for the game. Um, I think that, again, there are, explanations for why book Knight took as many shots as he did at UConn in a system that was pretty much built around him and didn't have a ton of other offensive talent. But at the end of the day, I would rather uh, roll the dice on somebody who, you know, as we mentioned, is able to involve others and, and just kind of have that high level skill similar to a Cade Cunningham or a Jalen Suggs, but uh, book Knight's certainly in play at seven, especially if the Raptors are there and, and are rebuilding their backcourt and say, we just need a guy who's going to go out there and score the basketball. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he's a professional level scorer. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. I mean, and, and listen, when you watch the playoffs nowadays, like it, it's, there's so much offense um, that has dominated throughout the course of the playoffs. feels like it's cooled off just a little bit in the conference finals. Uh, but still like you just need multiple guys who can go out there, get a bucket. And I mean, he's a guy that just jumps off the page as a, as a bucket getter. And um, you know, I'm going to say that's, even with the shooting concerns too, I mean, you know, it's not the direct translation between if you can shoot off the bounce, then you can maybe shoot, catch and shoot. But like, if you can make tougher shots, generally speaking, you probably should be able to make easier shots as well. And I think especially with more preparation in that sense, if, you, if your role isn't always to go out there and, and, and you know, put up 30, 35, then um, maybe uh, your, your skill set adapts to, to, to change that as well. So, I mean, look, listen, I think this is this is really fun to, to talk about the draft. It's really fun to sort of look at this draft and sort of um, in particular and sort of with the Raptors being in the fourth pick, a lot of options. Uh, I think, honestly, you know, even with the Raptors having some pretty good players in a in a in an NBA sense where there's feels like a very hectic NBA season, mostly because the playoffs have been super hectic. I mean, I don't think anyone predicted like it's going to be probably Bucks versus Suns in the finals. You know, that's I, I don't know. I, anyway, but. Um, the Raptors are in a good spot. Like whether they want to pivot into a full rebuild, they have valuable players for that. Or if they just want to take the pick, develop and stay competitive, they can do that as well. Um, it's kind of a bit of a no lose situation. So um, yeah. In the meantime though, Adam, I really want to thank you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, you know, thank you for your time. And honestly, again, just thanks for, you know, doing all the draft work that you've done. Um, I mean, uh it's it's fantastic i've already recommended you before on the podcast but once again if you're looking for youtube draft content if you're looking for uh film to watch on guys sort of get a breakdown of sort of strength and weaknesses sort of more subtleties as well adam's your guy just search his name adam spinella on youtube and you'll find your channel and it's awesome and honestly like i think you might be the first celtics fan i've ever invited on here i think so (laughs) that's uh (laughs) it takes a lot i feel like for a raptor fan to, to overcome um our uh, our hatred of the Celtics, which by the way, I got to ask you, like, I, I feel like, so Raptor fans definitely don't like the Celtics and there's multiple reasons for that. 
mostly because the Celtics have beaten up on the Raptors over the years. Game seven, okay, that was a thing too. Back in the day, there was a drive where Paul Pierce kicked Chris Bosh in the nuts uh, on a dunk. There was, you know, KG got on all fours and, and taunted Jose Calderon once. You know what I mean? So, like, there's reasons to dislike the Celtics. Plus, I think there's a lot of, like, Bruins, Leafs kind of uh, feelings there too. So it's, it's raw on multiple levels. Um, but I feel like Celtics fans don't care about Raptors like that. And, and to be honest, I don't really see a full reason to. And until there's sort of a reciprocity, um, it's not as official of a rivalry. But uh, I, I just wanted to ask you, like, do, do Celtics fans care about Raptor fans? It's not that they don't care. Um, it's that from, from my measure, there's no more obnoxious fan base than the Philadelphia 76ers. Oh, okay, good. That's, um, that's where I think the ire comes in between the two fans. Like if you're a Celtics fan and you have to deal with process Sixers and everybody oh, talking about uh, Embiid being so much better than Jason Tatum. And, and it's kind of always been that way for the last decade, probably. Um, mm. That tends to be the primary one, as well as any team LeBron James is on. Um, you know, the, the Celtics are just so steeped in tradition and rivalries with teams like the Lakers and the Knicks that a lot of the old guard has feelings towards them. Mm-hmm. The new guard, very much the Sixers, which are, are also split in the old guard as well. And then the LeBron James hate. So there's, I think there's only so many teams that you can pour your energy into really, uh, really disliking at one time. I'm not that type of guy. I don't have <laughs> ill will toward, towards any fan or team. I'm, I just love watching like NBA team building and good mm-hmm. basketball. That's what I'm all about. But uh, I certainly understand the perspective of Raptors fans of saying like, Hey, we hate you guys. Why don't you hate us back? <laughs> that's the, that's always the funny thing too. Cause I'm like, I, I really do dislike the Celtics, but I mean, like, I, I just know that they don't care about uh, the Raptors like that, which um, yeah. I mean, before I let you go, honestly, like what the hell is going on with the Celtics? So you guys, you, so you guys, so Brad Stevens moves on. I don't think anyone saw that coming. Uh, transitioning to a new role his first move already to move Kemba which I think makes sense um I I just think Kemba just didn't work out right and I think some injury issues I just think probably even the fit didn't fully work in in terms of Kemba so you guys get Al Horford and then he hires Ime Udoka as his replacements um I mean what what are your thoughts so far and sort of where the Celtics are uh during this turbulent summer so the, the Celtics summer, like I, I think of Brad Stevens as moving into this new position and saying, I want whoever comes in here not to have to deal with the same roster construction that I just had, because as they've determined, they needed to build around Tatum and Brown. The roster was set up for that, you know, last year and a couple of years before that, when they had Gordon Hayward as another wing to be able to play in there, they had more shooting and playmaking from their one and five positions and this is more of a, a way of saying we need to get back to that. We need to really put Tatum and Brown in positions where they're surrounded by the caliber of talent that makes them pop to the next level. Um, so getting rid of Kemba, a defender who they probably had to con- consistently try to, to hide on that end, was going to be important for the postseason series. Helping reset their books a little bit by getting off that extra year and saying we're probably not going to find a rotation caliber player at 16 when we've already got five or six young guys on the roster. Uh, So I I think Fournier is going to be really important for them to keep moving forward and then seeing what they can do to add another piece um, to put next to to Smart and him in the backcourt. So uh, I think it's just more so a reshuffling of their depth. And Mm -hmm. the best way to go through that was to clear their books, get rid of Kemba Walker, 
and allow Stevens to remake the roster in a way that's going to best support Tatum and Brown as the two alphas. Um, I feel like also losing Stevens in the coaching role is not ideal just because he was such a, he is such a good coach. Like, I mean, I would love to slander the Celtics, but he's fantastic. I don't know. Yeah. Like you said, it was a move I didn't necessarily see coming. Uh Uh, For it to be announced the day after their season ended means that it was in the works for a while. Right. But but I also think that um, in terms of looking forward, Ime Udoka is going to do an unbelievable job, really well thought out, thought Mm -hmm. of as an assistant. So they've, they've added the right pieces thus far. But um, they just need to make sure that there's more aggression to, to add talent that helps them win now because the last place you want to be stuck is in that 6 through 10 role in the Eastern Conference. Yeah. It's kind of purgatory where you're making the playoffs every year, but you're not really a contender or uh, you're not you know, bottoming out with the bottom of the East before you end up getting those top picks. That's where I think Toronto's in a good spot by leapfrogging up in the lottery. They're going to hopefully help themselves avoid being being caught in those spots more uh, for a long period of time. Yeah. No, Yudoka is a, is a really nice hire. I think, um, he, I think he, he's been in consideration for a few jobs and um, I know he was for the Raptors as well when, before they settled on nurse. Um, so, I mean, I would like to wish their, your Celtics the best of luck, but I'm not going to do that. Um, hopefully <laughs> you guys are going to be fifth in the conference or fifth in the division and things like that. And uh it's probably not likely, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hope at least it's a little bit less hectic than this year because I thought it was almost unnecessarily dramatic. I think for all the the the, the handering over the Celtics, like, you know, this is still an incredible base to build off of having two guys like that in, in Brown and, and Tatum who seem committed to the program, who want to keep going. And and honestly, with enough flexibility that like, you know, if the next star came along and you had, you know, the right GM, I guess, in place now with Stevens potentially, like, you know, it, it's it's not hard to foresee how the Celtics could get back you know, into a contention type of spot, but uh, I, I don't want to see that happen. So um, Adam, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Once again, is there anything you would like to plug or sort of um, leave the listeners and viewers with before we go? Now, first off, thank you for, for having me on. Always glad to talk NBA hoops here. And as somebody who doesn't hate the Toronto Raptors, I'm really glad to see you guys move up into that fourth spot. I actually think it's a, an unbelievable fit for whoever the team gets there. And, yeah. and it's, going to keep the, the franchise in a, in a great spot. Um, if you want to find any of my content, please search me on YouTube at Adam Spinella. There are links to the website, The Box in One, which is the, the website I'm currently running and, and writing for right now with a lot of draft scattering reports, written pieces, uh, philosophical pieces on the NBA, as well as X's and O's content. Uh, so follow me there, theboxin1.weebly.com or and underscore one on Twitter. But uh, again, thank you for, for having me on here. We're less than a month from the NBA draft. So the final push here to the finish line and hopefully the Raptors find themselves with their superstar of the future moving forward. Yeah, I look forward to Jalen Suggs dropping 30 on the Celtics uh, regularly moving forward. So uh, uh, yeah, thank you, Adam. And uh, thank you, listeners. Uh, we'll be back with, uh, honestly, a lot of Canada basketball coverage. So it's gonna the podcast is going to shift towards the tournament, at least for this week. So look out for that. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 